0: My goodness, Anna, thank you so very much for that beautiful piano solo. Lori Klein, dear Lori Klein, riding from a double wide trailer with kids sick and crying, and she comes up with that melody and with those words. In her wildest imagination she could never dream it could be arranged so beautifully. It was just wonderful. Thank you so very much. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice, regardless of our circumstances, as it was with Lori Klein, just the difficulty and really crying out, God gave her that beautiful melody and words, and we sing them today. Thank the Lord. Did you all receive your outlines? If you need an outline, raise your hand, and Joe Peria will... Provide it for you. This is the second in the series of introductory messages that we'll have on the heart of God. I'd like you to be praying for others that will be sharing on this topic in the weeks to come. This coming Sunday, Sean Fulham will be sharing with us. It says in the bulletin that it's Joe Perriel, but because of the schedules of the two men they've switched and so Sean will be speaking this coming Sunday followed by Joe Perriel and then the weeks following that Ryan Urbasic, Joe Boyette and Jack Bainline will also be speaking on the topic the heart of God. I trust that you'll be blessed by the thoughts that are shared by these brothers as they let you know how the Lord has guided them in the thoughts of the heart of God. We started this series last Sunday with thoughts in the heart of God. We used scripture and found these three things that are in the heart of God. The first thing we found was grief. Grief at the loss of God's loved ones here on this earth. Grief over the loss of relationship that he would like them to have with one another. And that he would like them to have with him. And something we often neglect in our thoughts the relationship that He would like to have with us. And so we find the first thing there in God's heart is grief. Grief at profound loss for those that He loves because of their sin. The second thing that we found in God's heart was His sovereignty and His speaking or sharing about His sovereignty. God has sovereign plans for heaven, earth, mankind, and all His creation. His plans are irresistible. They will happen, just as he has said. Dozens of Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. All that God has promised will be fulfilled. As Peter says, we are not following some cunningly devised fables. All prophecy is from God. And as sure as his pronouncement is, so surely will the events happen. God just doesn't have His sovereign plans, but He shares these plans with us. He speaks to us through His spoken Word, His written Word, and His living Word, Jesus Christ. That should be an amazing thing to us that God, the sovereign God, the King of the universe, humbles Himself to the place where to His creatures, to His subjects, He reveals His plans. And not some obscure difficult-to-understand aspect of plans, but rather the comprehensive plans that He has to bring us into relationship with Himself. God lovingly shares those things with us and wants us to know about them. It's the nature of the intimate relationship that He longs to have. And then finally, after grief and sovereignty and His speaking or sharing about those sovereign plans, we discovered that in God's heart is the temple In the Old Testament, it was the dwelling place for God, whether it was the tabernacle or the ancient temple of Solomon or the rebuilt temple of Zerubbabel's time, or even the temple that Herod was making. God said, the Lord Jesus Christ said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer referring to the temple that was being built there. So God's heart is on the dwelling place of himself among men. But God's heart is devoted to the ultimate dwelling place among men. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ, tabernacling himself among men. He that has seen the Father has seen me, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have God's heart on that temple. The Lord Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days. It'll be raised up again. The Lord Jesus Christ was the dwelling place here in this earth for man. Uh, for man to see God. But beyond that, there is a temple that's here today. We are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells in each one of us. The church that is joined together is the temple of God. And God has set His heart on us. Today, we are in the heart of God. We're the focus of His attention. We're so important to Him that He sends His Spirit to dwell within us. There is this unbelievable verse that we have in the book of Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so as God has that attention on His temple, both the historic temple, the personal temple of Jesus Christ, and the people that are His temple today, we discover that all of those are in the heart of God. Now let's continue to look into the Scripture and consider the heart of God by looking and seeing what's there in other passages, please be in prayer for those that I mention in the weeks to come. Let's have a word of prayer now. Father, we thank You for the heart of God. We thank You for revealing it to us specifically in particular verses. And in the weeks to come, there will be stories that will be shared of the love that flows from the heart of God, of the compassion that that God has compassion for His creation and compassion for His people, that there is within the heart of God such depths of feeling, depths of desire, longing for relationship. And so, thank You for revealing this to us in the Word today. Pray Your blessing upon the Sunday school classes, Lord. We have these folks that week by week minister to the youngest and to the oldest of the young people that we have here at the assembly. Ask your blessing upon those teachers and then their classes as well. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles, please, to Psalm 22. Now, it's occurred to me as I've... Uh, studied and prepared for these messages and as the other brothers have too, you might say, why isn't everything about God's heart just in one spot? Why don't we find it all listed there and uh, refer to it there? Well, that's the wonder of studying Scripture. It's God inviting us to peruse, to look through, to ruminate, to meditate, to be involved in His Word and to discover. I'm glad Heather's not here. (laughs) It's like me asking here now, sweetheart, you know, just give me all the ways you love me right now, will you please? And you know, put it in the Cliff Notes version and give it real quick so I can take it it's a wonder in a lifetime to discover the way in which you love one another and how you love one another and the depths to which you love one another and the patience and the long suffering that's needed for learning about that love for one another. And God's doing the same thing with us. He's letting us know, this is what's in my heart, but pursue it, look for it, learn about it. And here we have Psalm 22 before us. There's something that is in the heart of God all through the things that we have found in the heart of God so far. Whether it is the grief of loss, His sovereign plan, His speaking and sharing with us, or his heart being on the temple of the Lord, that's you and me, the only way that the grief of God can be relieved, the only meaning that brings the focus of his sovereign plan and his sharing and speaking with people, whether it's weeping because of the sin that occurs in the Garden of Eden or all the way to the worship of the Son of God in heaven itself, God's heart-filled attentiveness to his temple Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, and to you and me, the temples of the Lord. All of these things in God's heart hinge on what's revealed to us in Psalm 22. Without the things that are described for us here in Psalm 22, these other things that we've looked at in the heart of God, they'd be meaningless. But because of what we have here in Psalm 22, we have meaning to God's grief, to God's sovereignty, to God's speaking, and to God's attention to his temple. Psalm 22, written by David, is the first of a trio of psalms, Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Psalm 22 describes for us things in the first half of that psalm that David never experienced in his life. The first verse takes us straight to Golgotha, and the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. Quoting from the Psalm My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cries out from the Psalm, but it cries out more importantly from the cross. The perfect man, the last Adam, the sinless one who became sin for us, is being judged by the holy. Righteous God, all of the sin from every person in the history of the world is placed into the precious body of Jesus, that heavenly man. And he is bearing God's judgment for us. And his mind goes back to Psalm 22. And he cries out as God is judging this perfect man who now has absorbed all of the sin of all mankind into himself And He cries out sincerely, My God, My God, why have you forsaken Me? Please notice, it's not My Father, My Father, why have you forsaken Me? The Trinity of the three Persons of the Godhead can never be broken. Even on the cross, when Jesus Christ is bearing the sins of all mankind, There is never an abandonment by God for His Son. There is judgment upon this One who is bearing all the sin of all mankind. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Says the man, Christ Jesus, in bearing the sin of the entire world. Dear ones, we look in the offerings of the Old Testament and we see the sin offering. In the sin offering, The offerer was to place his hands on the head of that offering. And then the offering was taken outside the camp. It was not permitted to be burned upon the altar, the brazen altar, where things ascended to God as a sweet-smelling savor. That was taken outside the camp and burned out there in the place of the ashes. But as you study the sin offering, even in the sin offering, no matter how extensive the sin placed on that offering, there were portions in that offering that were still cut out and placed upon the altar and ascended to God as a sweet-smelling savor. No matter how great, how numerous, how awful, how hideous the sins of mankind, no matter how deep my own personal sins are. And placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, He is infinitely greater than any sin that can be placed upon Him. And there is something in Jesus Christ, even there on the cross, that is pleasing to God and acceptable to Him. And God cries out, Jesus Christ cries out from the cross, My God, My God. You're judging me as the sin bearer. This marvelous relationship that we've always experienced here in this earth as a human being, as the tabernacle, as the temple, that's broken. But there's something deeper, eternal, that can never be broken the eternal bond between the Father the Son, and the Spirit of God. We go to verse 14. We can read the details here in Psalm 22 of the crucifixion that's written here a thousand years before there's crucifixion. There is no method of death that's like this in the Old Testament. Here in verse 14, it says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax within my breast. This scene, this experience, has been in the heart of God, the sufferings of Calvary. We look into the heart of God and we find that the crucifixion has been in His heart for all eternity. Now, you might say to yourself, uh, Phil, you're applying a prophetic remark about the sufferings of the crucifixion from Psalm 22 and that are repeated by the Lord Jesus on the cross. And you're extending those and saying that God has always had that in his heart. It's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Listen to what these other scriptures have to say to us. In Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus said to the disciples, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man. They will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. The Lord repeats this prophecy at least three other times to the disciples. In Luke 24, after the Lord Jesus is raised from the dead and he's walking with the two on the Emmaus road, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, He interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. In Acts Acts 2, verse 23, on the day of Pentecost, Fifty days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter speaks these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty words and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then finally, 40 years later, Peter writes in his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or without spot, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Whether it's a few months before his crucifixion, as he spoke to the disciples, or whether it's going back thousands of years, as the Lord Jesus Christ explains to the two in the Emmaus Road, or whether it's an eternal fact, as Peter speaks to us on the day of Pentecost, Jesus was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. And here in 1 Peter, it was known before the foundation of the world, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ has been in the heart of God for all eternity. The need for that to take place, for there to be an acceptable sacrifice for the sin of mankind, is something that's been in God's heart. And the sufferings that would take place there on the cross, that's been on God's heart for all eternity. Without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no meaning. It's Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all most miserable. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry. But the fact is, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He's alive, and it puts meaning into all that takes place in our lives. And God has that in His heart and has had it in His heart. When David penned the words of Psalm 22, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit knew of this particular, painful, indeed excruciating, excruciating, out of the cross, excruciating excruciating event. It was known among the Trinity, and gradually God has been revealing His plan of physical and spiritual pain that Jesus Christ would suffer to men and women throughout history in His dealings with us. The crucifixion was and is in the heart of God. Now, I speak to you as one who deeply appreciates the way in which we meet and how thankful I am that every single Sunday we come here and we remember the death, the burial the resurrection, and the soon return of Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, dear ones, I don't want me to be puffing out my Plymouth Brethren chest and saying we've got it all right. All I'm saying is that what we do week by week is precious to me. I trust it's precious to you. I know it's precious to God. I know it's precious to Jesus Christ. This do in remembrance of me. I'm responding to something that he's directed and instructed me to do. How thankful, worshipful, and praise-filled I am today that God having this unbelievable event in mind and heart from eternity past, still went through with the experience of the cross. All so that I could be saved from my sin today and in God's family. Praise the Lord. I praise the Lord for all that He did. It's one thing to be involved in a sudden incident where the difficulty suddenly crowds in upon you. It is something else to contemplate it for a period of time. It is something else to have it in your heart, thinking and focusing on this essential event so that we might be bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ and brought into the family of God. That is the intensity. That is the length, the breadth, the height, the depth of the love of Jesus Christ for us. And we are a worshiping people as a result. Praise God. (laughs) Sorry, I can't help myself. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord for what He's done in buying me with His own precious blood. I will not cease to praise the Lord and to bring His name before you today. And for those that are strangers to His grace, I say to you, praise the Lord for who He is and what He's done. The crucifixion was and is in the heart of God. Now if you turn up to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 3, we'll look at something else that's in the heart of God. Shepherding is in God's heart for His people. When Babylon was moving on Jerusalem, the empire of Babylon was moving on Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar moving his troops there, getting ready to invade the city and take the captives to Babylon. All of this was at the direction of God to judge Judah for its years, decades, and centuries of sin. God had His prophet Jeremiah proclaim the word, of the Lord to kings, priests, false prophets, and commoners alike. In Jeremiah 3, God reveals something that's in his heart. Here's what God says in verses 15 and 16. "'Turn, O backsliding children,' says the Lord, "'for I am married to you. "'I will take one from a city, two from a family, "'and I will bring you to Zion.' And I will give you shepherds according to my heart. It's not just the crucifixion that's in the heart of God in our study today. It's also the caring for us by shepherds, loving and faithful shepherds. There are many shepherds in the scripture, starting with Abel. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all are in the line of shepherds caring for and raising sheep. The Lord took this very familiar work to the people of Israel and applied it to himself in John 10, stating, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He further says in John 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received, this opportunity to do this I've received, this authority I've received from my Father. The Lord Jesus sets the highest standards for shepherds and their ministries. In the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God rails against false shepherds that are in Israel. Those who were there in Israel at that time to guide, guard, and protect the sheep in the fold of Israel instead led God's people astray, allowed them to wander unprotected, attacked, encouraging them in idol worship. Instead of feeding the flock, these false shepherds fed themselves from the flock. They ate the meat of the sheep. They clothed themselves in the skin and the wool of the sheep that the shepherds are supposed to protect. And God cries out here in chapter 3 and in other portions of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel that He'll provide shepherds after His own heart to take care of His people that He loves so passionately. In the heart of God, we have such profound grief for the evil of His people, but even more profound grace, calling to His people to turn and repent from their sinful ways, And he'll give them shepherds according to his own heart. Shepherding is deep in the heart of God. The Lord Jesus is the good, great and chief shepherd who longs for us to turn and he will be the shepherd of our lives. He's the good shepherd because he gave his life for the sheep. He laid his life down and he took it again. He is the great shepherd because he brought us from death to life by faith in him. He is the chief shepherd because he shepherds his flock, his church, and graciously invites others to help with his shepherding work. The privilege that it is to be a shepherd, an elder, an overseer, a bishop of God's people, God has privileged me to be allowed to do that here in the assembly for many years. God seeks today to have shepherds according to his heart. Please pray for the elders of the assembly. Pray for the Lord to raise up other shepherds among us. To shepherd this local church according to his heart. And in other churches to bring joy to the heart of God by the ministry performed by the shepherds of his flock. Here's a confession by this elder The more I study the Lord Jesus, the farther I realize how far short I fall from being a shepherd like the Lord. That is a confession that each of the elders here can make. That as we look into the compassion of the Lord and the willingness of Him to lay His life out and to give Himself, it it is such a glorious and wonderful standard that's given to us. We thank God for such a shepherd, Jesus Christ. Dear ones, keep this in mind. Pray for the human shepherds that you have here, we under shepherds, but dear ones, you do have a shepherd. You do have a shepherd that is constantly taking care of you. You do have a shepherd that always has you in mind. You do have a shepherd that is constantly praying for you. He states it about Himself. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He is always at the right hand of God, pleading your case. He is always there with the affection of Himself for you upon His chest and upon His shoulders. Our great High Priest has our names written there, the place where He loves us, and here, the place of strength. And in any failings by any human shepherd. Jesus Christ the great, the good, the chief shepherd is always there for you. And you can draw upon His shepherd's care for you. Take the Word of God and believe it and act upon it by faith. You have a shepherd. Jesus Christ the righteous. Shepherding of God's people is in the heart of God. Now God is emphatic emphatic about things that are not in his heart. You find these in Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 32. Uh, Let me go through just what this says. In Jeremiah, we hear the open, grieving heart of the Lord. For centuries, the Lord has dealt with Israel. Through the dark days of the judges, the failed kingship of Saul, the conquering kingship of David, the magnificent kingdom of Solomon, and then the awful division of the nation into Judah in the south and the ten Tribes in the north called Israel. The continual evil by every king in Israel and the roller coaster of good and bad kings in Israel, excuse me, in Judah, always, always, always being spoken to these kings by God's prophets such as Elijah, Elisha, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Isaiah, Hosea, Habakkuk, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah and unnamed prophets that appear there in the Old Testament as well, just called the prophet of the Lord. But now, after all of God's patience for hundreds of years, the time of judgment has come for the nation of Judah, the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin. Israel was carried away in captivity by the Assyrians, and now Judah is going to be carried off by the Babylonians. The sins of the kingdom of Judah were so profound God names them and says such things were never in his heart. You have false prophets at the time that are encouraging individuals in this false worship that's taking place. And God says emphatically, that's never been in my heart. I'll quote the portion in just a moment. God reveals to us what's in His heart. I have grief in my heart. I have plans in my heart. I have communication in my heart. I have the temple in my heart. I have the crucifixion in my heart. I have shepherding in my heart. But this has never been in my heart. Don't ascribe these things to me. This is what it says in Jeremiah 7.31 and seven thirty-two thirty-five. 35 It's in grief about the sins of Judah they have built the high places to Tophet and Baal in the, in the valley of Henan to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, offering them to Moloch, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Today, the evil in the world that abounds in so many ways never has been is or will be in the heart of God. And he takes the time to tell us this. The enemy is at work in this world of which he is the prince. The systems of this world are evil from his design. The many people of this earth follow in his murderous lying paths Bringing destruction to themselves and to those who participate in their sinful ways. I can't stand it when someone says in the insurance thing, it was an act of God that took place. As if God somehow has taken his finger and afflicted someone at a point in time. God has no interest at all. It's not in his heart to hurt or to harm, to cause evil. I don't mean to be impatient. Please don't speak to me of the consequences of mankind's evil actions and then wag the finger at God and say, Why don't you do something about this? I did do something about it. I sent my son. I've given you my word. You have a choice in which to live for eternity or for hell. That's the choices that you have to make. And many of you here on this earth have chosen to make this earth into a living hell. Please don't come to me and beg me. For why don't I act? I have acted. Oh, how wonderful to live in a day of grace. Grace. where the gospel of God is available to all who believe. I'm going to read this paragraph twice. The heart of God is to save, to love, to extend grace, mercy, and peace, to bind up the wounded, to free the prisoner, to bring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, walking and running to the lame, and life to those dead in their sins. This is the great God we know, love, and worship this day. We stand for this. The heart of God is to save, to love, to extend grace, mercy, and peace to bind up the wounded, to free the prisoner, to bring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the dumb, walking and running to the lame, and life to those dead in their sins. That is the God that we love, know, and in whose heart we dwell today. Praise God for such a Savior and Lord and coming King. Let's have one final thought about what's in the heart of God from Isaiah 63. The first four verses, let me read them to you. As I read them, try to picture what's being given to us in this set of words. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Who is this? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore are your garments red? Your apparel and your garments like him that treads the winepress? I have trod the winepress alone, and of the people there is none with me. For I tread in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and will stain all my raiment, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of the redeemed is come." Now, this is a startling picture of Jesus Christ. There's something that's in the heart of God. It's the day of judgment. It is telling us what the holy God will do in his righteous judgment upon his return to the earth as king and the needed cleansing of the earth of the sinful filth that will be there at the time of his return. God has given every opportunity for salvation. The free gospel of faith, belief in Jesus Christ, has been proclaimed. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Let me make that proclamation today to everyone that's here. If you're a stranger to the grace of God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It cannot be any simpler, plainer, or more easily understood. Christ is completing His church and He will draw His bride into heaven in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and so she will ever be with the Lord. Now, this is what remains. An unsaved population of the earth facing seven hideous years of environmental, health, political, military, economic, cosmic, satanic evil such as the world has never seen. The last portion of these seven years is called the Great Tribulation. Even during this time, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. 144,000 sealed Jewish preachers are going to go throughout the earth during that time, and they're going to proclaim the very same message that John the Baptist had at that time. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and it will be at hand. In just three and a half years, during this time of great tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to come back. The kingdom of God is going to occur. The one who left from the Mount of Olives will return to the Mount of Olives. And he'll come here and he'll establish his kingdom. And these preachers go throughout the land and they preach this gospel. The gospel is repent. The kingdom is at hand. And that will be accepted by God as faith in Jesus Christ there'll be two other witnesses that will be sent from God with miraculous powers to proclaim the Gospel with signs and wonders. These signs and wonders will be manifest. We think we see things now in the moment with our devices that we have. We can see whatever we want to. These two men, they're going to be killed, martyred. Their bodies will be there in Jerusalem. And it says very plainly that people will send presents to each other. I can do that today. I get onto my computer or my phone and I can send something from... What's the company? Say it again. Amazon. Amazon. I can send it halfway around the world and they get it. And so the men are dying there. (laughs) Every eye can see them. And then suddenly, they rise up from the streets of Jerusalem. They go straight into heaven. The gospel's been proclaimed. Not the gospel that I'm preaching today. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel then is going to be repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's going to return and it's going to be soon. And he's going to be the righteous king. And then finally there is an angelic witness and testimony that's given too. There's going to be an angelic messenger that's going to fly through the sky proclaiming to all the earth in their own languages, to every nation, tribe, and language, saying, Fear God, give Him glory, for the hour of judgment is come. Worship Him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs and water. See, that's going to be a very important message at that time. The waters of the earth are going to be turned to blood. And people are going to be desperate for just some kind of a drink and this angel goes out and cries out so that all can hear and understand. Worship the One who's coming, Jesus Christ. And there are going to be millions of souls saved through this evangelistic effort by these Jewish preachers and these two witnesses. It's going to be one of the greatest times of salvation that we've ever had on the earth. But, for those that reject, those that are left... See, that's what is being talked about here in Isaiah 63. It's on these people where the Lord comes in, and with great vigor, stamps in the winepress, and the blood is coming up on His vesture. Those that are left, the rejecters of the gospel, loyal to the beast, bearing His mark, worshiping His image, encouraged by His false prophet, intent on destroying the nation of Israel and killing every Jew possible, these rejectors who curse God and do not turn to Him for salvation, they will be the objects of the vigorous judgment of God through Jesus Christ, the coming King. His garments are splattered with blood as He tramples the nations and dashes them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, That's the sovereign plan of God that's irresistible and will happen, and he shared it with us. This awful day of vengeance. We do not preach that gospel today. We preach a gospel of faith, belief, grace, mercy, And the goodness of God leads us to repentance. What's being described here in the heart of God is this awful day of judgment during this particular time that I'm describing to you. Oh, dear friend, how hideous is the reality the world will face. It does not need to be so for you from the first blood shed by an innocent animal to cover Adam and Eve, to the Passover lamb, to the offering by Elijah on Mount Carmel, through the thousands of substitutionary sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, God has been showing us all there is a full, complete, substitutionary Savior who took our place by His death on the cross. He proved He's greater than death, greater than sin, greater than Satan by the Lord Jesus Christ raising from the dead, ascending into heaven and represents us at the throne of God right now. But see, not even this picture that we have here in Isaiah 63. That's not going to let us stop at the judgment of God. Let's look at verse 4. And the verse, and what is in the heart of God does not end with the day of vengeance. There is this wonderful three-letter word, and, that is there. At the end of the verse, it says, And the year of redemption has come. Redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy, his child, and forever I am. The day of vengeance is not the last thing in the heart of God. God calls his judgment his strange work. He has no longing for it, he has no desire for it. His holiness compels him to do it. He must do it. But what God really wants to reveal in his heart is the year of redemption buying us back with his own blood. The last thing that's in his heart is this grand and glorious, never-ending year of redemption, the glory of the people of God surrounding the throne with 24 elders, seraphim, cherubim, myriads of angels and hosts, all praising the Lamb of God, who's redeemed us, bought us back with his own blood. It is the year of redemption. Worthy is the Lamb of God. Worthy is the Lamb of God who has redeemed us with His blood. It is in the heart of God for us to be in His family by faith in His Son to learn and meditate on what is in the heart of God. That's what our task is for us in these next several weeks. Grief, lamentation, loss of relationship, sovereign plans and sharing His plans with us, His love and desire for His temple, the crucifixion, the shepherding of His people, sadly, His day of vengeance, but praise God, the last word, His redemption. That's all in the heart of God. Last week I spoke to you about a heart-to-heart talk with God. God's opened His heart to us. And He's saying I'd really like to have a heart-to-heart talk with you. This week I'm going to invite you to have a heartfelt response to what's in the heart of God. I cannot force it. It is the Spirit of God that will encourage your response to what we've learned is in God's heart. May we have that heartfelt response to what's in the heart of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for revealing Your heart It's so blessed, it's so wonderful, it's so glorious. Dear Lord, the stories that we're going to be entering into that reveal the heart of God and his love, sometimes under such awful circumstances, such awful conditions. Oh, dear God, bless these other brothers as they're preparing their messages and sharing with us what is in the heart of God. Dear God, thank you for buying me with your own precious blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. My heartfelt response, I love you, Lord. I love you. Thank you. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.